Good to see you all here. Hope you have your Bibles, and I hope you do this morning. If you don't have your Bible, hopefully you have a uh, smartphone with a Bible app uh, on it. Uh, take it and turn to the book of Philippians, and uh, we're going to chapter 4. Uh, after uh, so many months of making our way through the book of Philippians, that's where we find ourselves uh, this morning. And last week, if you were with us, uh, hopefully you remember that we gave you four keys to a game plan to pursue with passion knowing Jesus in this life and also pursuing the prize that is ours in Christ Jesus. And Paul talked about that uh, very specifically in those last verses of chapter 3. And he moves into this final uh, chapter and he gives the, some words to the Philippians and he reminds them how he feels about them. And you may recall if you go back to chapter 1 that Paul did this several times in chapter 1. He wanted to make sure that the people knew how deeply he felt towards them and how every time he thought about them, he thanked God for them. He said that he holds them deeply in his heart and he really wanted to be with them because he obviously missed them. And now he writes in chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved which is just an incredible word, and we don't have time to go there, but that word uh, beloved is an uh, adjective form of uh, the greatest word for love that's used in Scripture, that agape love. And Paul is just about ready to tell them something that is going to be something that's going to be hard for at least some of them to hear. And so he simply says, in a nutshell, I'm telling you what I'm getting ready to tell you because I love you, I care about you. Have any of you ever used that method with your children, right? I can't remember the times when my dad, and this is back in the old days when uh, we actually thought the rear end was given to parents so that they might, you know, spank, and we won't get into the uh, ramifications of all of that in 2017, but my dad never read that book, and so uh, normally right before he would get ready to spank me, he would say, you know, this hurts me more than it does you. And I can remember as a middle schooler going, well, then turn around, you know, and I'll, I'll show you, right? But regularly, I said to my kids growing up, as we would have to discipline them, as we'd have to take something away, you know, this hurts me more than it does you, but I'm doing what I'm doing. I'm saying what I'm saying because I love you. Can I just say to you that people who love other people tell them things that they don't want to hear? but they need to hear. You would do well to remember that in your life, that people that really love you will tell you things that you don't want to hear, that are uncomfortable to hear, but they tell you those things because they love you. In fact, Proverbs says it in Proverbs chapter 27 and verse 6, faithful are the wounds of, an, of a friend, but profane are the kisses of an enemy. Look out for the person that's always flattering you and telling you everything that you want to hear and you think you need to hear because Proverbs says in the end, so many of those people end up being enemies. What's interesting in this particular uh, text, in fact, not just this text, but the whole book of Philippians is that Paul obviously demonstrates that as a theologian, he is without equal. But he was also a man of deep passion and had a capacity to love people as well. And can I tell you that that is the way that pastoral ministry should be. Pastors should be very committed to preaching and teaching the truth, 
But if a pastor loves the truth and is not so sure that he loves people, that's dangerous. And I've seen both. I've seen pastors that I believe love the truth of Scripture and correctly exposit the Word of God, and yet they're not so sure they love people. That's a problem. On the other hand, I've seen pastors that obviously love and care about people, but so much so that they never want to tell people anything that they don't want to hear, lest those people fall out of love with them. And both of those things are a problem. What you really want and what we strive to be here at Northwest, and I'm sure we fail on a regular basis, but we're striving for this, is to love you and demonstrate that love in such a way that we are willing to say the things that need to be said even though those things may be painful for a time. So Paul tells them that they are his joy and his crown. When Paul says they're his crown, he means that these people are his reward. He reminded them that they are the fruit of his ministry. They're the proof that his life has actually meant something. I grieve for so many people that I come in contact with that don't understand the truth of a statement like that, that people are, at the, end of our, at the end of the day, the ultimate reward as we serve Jesus on this planet. Some of you are missing such great opportunity to store up, as Scripture says, treasure for yourself in heaven because you're not involved in the lives of other people. You're consumed with your world. Paul said, you're my, you're my reward, you're my crown, you're my, you're my joy, because you represent that, that my life has actually mattered here on this planet. And can I say before we move off of this verse that, that I know I echo uh, that sentiment from our elders and from our staff as well. There are so many of you that are part of Northwest And if we were penning a letter, we might not use those exact words, but we would probably write a letter back and say, you are our reward, you're our joy when we think about you. I had an opportunity just uh, last week, uh, Angie had a dinner, and she was recognizing uh, her volunteers. And you know that everything Angie does is just great and incredible, and she's always so well prepared for that. And um, in that particular event, she had a slideshow, and she kept showing uh, these pictures and having people stand, and they came to the front, and they were recognized, and I was blown away with the people that are involved in children's ministry, that are back there right now with our kids, that are on the floor with them, that are pouring into their lives the things that hopefully we're doing at home. And when I think about those people, as I saw them walk forward, I felt like this. There was great joy And I thought about Angie, that's your reward. That's the proof that your life matters. And for many of you that are involved in ministry, you're going to find one day as you see those little kids grow up, as you see those middle school and high school kids grow up, you're going to find out that that's the proof that your life mattered. Not your bank account, not what you did at work and how you climbed the corporate ladder, not how big your house was, how many vacation homes you had, where you went on vacation. The proof that your life actually matters is going to be people. And that was certainly true of Paul as well. So thank you, many of you, for bringing great joy uh, to our hearts as we see you serve. Uh, That's just really an incredible thing. And so Paul's last challenge to them in this verse, before he gets into the real meat of what he really wants to say, is to stand firm in the Lord. One of my favorite movies is uh, Gladiator. 
Uh, if there ever was a man movie, uh, it's uh, Gladiator. It just um, is one of those movies that makes you want to stand up and start beating your chest and going, you know, put me in battle, just give me a club, give me something. I want to go, I want to I take it. And you, many of you have seen the movie, you know what the setting is. The setting is uh, in about 180 A.D., Emperor Marcus Aurelius, it's his 12-year uh, campaign, and they're right at the final battle, and if they win this battle, there basically is going to be peace in the empire. And, and so, you know, as Russell Crowe comes running down that mountain to face those barbaric forces, he says these words, very similar to what the Apostle Paul says here. He yells to his men, and do you remember what he yells to them? He says, hold the line, hold the line, stay with me, stay with me. Why? Because he knew, <laughs> well, at least he knew if I would have been with him, that I would have been running the other direction. Every time I watch the movie, I think, what guts, what bravery, what stupidity it must have taken to run down a mountain and you're just going to club people and beat people to, to win peace and to win. But he says, hold the line, hold the line, stay with me, stay with me. And I tell you that this morning because that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is saying here. That in a culture, in fact, that you and I live in that is spiraling desperately out of control, and if there ever was a time, it's 2017, a culture that is going a direction very contrary to the principles that we find in the Word of God, Paul says to these people, hold the line, hold the line, stay with me. Now we've seen from our study in the book of Philippians that the church of Philippi was made up of very diverse people. Uh, there was a wealthy uh, business lady that was there. In fact, her name was Lydia. In fact, uh, most scholars believe that, that she and her family probably funded most of that early church there in Philippi. You remember the jailer uh, that came uh, to Christ from a very pagan background. And then there was the little girl. In fact, Paul got imprisoned when he cast the demons out of the little girl after her uh, involvement in satanic uh, ritual. Uh, this church had it all. And, and I think that's what I love about our church and so many others is uh, the diversity uh, that can come. And I think it's really cool to do life with people that come from all different backgrounds. In fact, as we have opportunity to interact and do life with so many of you at Northwest, and our church more and more, even here at Northwest, is becoming much more diverse. And we're very, very thankful for that. And I think that's what makes it a cool place. But people that grow up in the church have a little bit different view of the church. And there are some of you that are sitting here and you didn't grow up uh, in church. Uh, some of you have been in church for a long time and some of you have recently begun a relationship with Jesus. Some uh, are very conservative. We know who you are. And some of you are not so uh, conservative. And we know who you are too, just for the record. Uh, we've got you figured out. Some people understand grace in an incredible way this morning. You really get it, and you live your life that way. You understand the book of Galatians, that we are not under the law anymore, that we're under grace, and you live free in Christ. Others of you still struggle with not feeling like you're good enough, and so you grew up in a rule-based system, and, and, and so you're always kind of evaluating and wonder, can I do this? Can I be part of this? And while diversity in a church can be a really incredible thing, uh, it can set the stage for conflict as well. And it was true in the church at Philippi. Look at verse, verse 2. Paul says, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. 
Now, who are these ladies? We really don't know. And it's really fun to study and to read and to listen to scholars speculate, but it's just that. It's just speculation. Uh, we only see their names there. We don't see them any other place. Uh, they make it into the Bible, but not for a good reason, right? It'd be really cool to have your name in the Bible, but you kind of want your name in the Bible like maybe you like to be Daniel, right? He's thrown in the lion's den and he prayed to his God and his God saved him. Great reason to be in the Bible. This is not such a great reason to be in the Bible. We do know that in verse 3, Paul says that these women have served with him side by side. These aren't casual attenders at the church in Philippi. These two ladies were down in the trenches. They were influential in the church. And that's why Paul is begging for them because of their visibility in the church. Paul's begging for them to work out their issues. I want to stop for just a moment and, and, and just tell you this. that We have an incredibly high view of women at Northwest. And while we believe that uh, Scripture is very clear in uh, the book of 1 Timothy chapter 3 and in Titus 1 that the office of an elder is to be, a ser- men are to serve in that role. That does not mean that we don't have a very high view of women. I read things constantly as journals come across uh, my desk and blog posts uh, that talk about uh, conservative evangelical churches and how we have a very low view of women and we don't believe that women should serve in ministry. Can I just tell you, that is not true at Northwest Community Church. From the very beginning, we have valued women and we still value women. And it's very easy to understand why. If you look in the New Testament, in fact, if you look at the ministry of Jesus in the Gospels, uh, you will see very clearly that some of Jesus' closest disciples, those that were following him closely, were women. If you look at the early church, in fact, when we get into the book of Acts this fall, uh, Jerry and I are going to take you through what will probably be a 25 or 30 week study of the book of Acts. And you're going to see that over and over and over again, women are in very influential, very important places uh, in the church. And, and scripture never demeans the female intellect or diminishes the talents or attitudes uh, of women or their abilities. Jesus had a very high view of women, and we do as well uh, here at Northwest. And so my best guess as to who Yodia and Syntyche are is that they are probably uh, female deacons uh, that are serving there in the church at Philippi, but that's just a guess. So what was the conflict? The shorter answer is we don't know that either. We really don't know who those women are exactly. We don't know anything else about them. We don't know exactly what their position was. And we really don't even know what the conflict is, even though we can speculate. Here's three observations, though, that we can make about the conflict. First of all, it must not be a serious doctrinal issue. You say, how do we know that? Well, if Paul uh, uh, would have been true to every place else that he is in Scripture, in fact, when he's in Galatians, right, he is... He's specifically writing a letter to the church at Galatia, and he's telling them about uh, the false doctrine that has crept in there, and he's talking all about grace and what it means to live a grace-filled life. We know that he wasn't shy, certainly, about confronting doctrinal issues, and so we can only assume that if it would have been a very serious, significant doctrinal issue, that the Apostle Paul would have addressed that directly. It's important to understand, too, that... um, based on the issue that I don't think it's a serious doctrinal issue, that it's important for us to understand uh, that we, we, we can't all just get along as it relates to significant core doctrine. I hope you understand that. I was sitting at a table with a guy uh, just last night who 
uh, goes to a church in the area. I'll just leave it at that. And uh, we started talking about his church, and he said, I grew up Baptist, I grew up Methodist, and I go to this particular church. And he said, I really like it, except I've never heard the devil mentioned at all. And he, this is just a he's, a, he's a lay person. He probably goes like once a month to this particular church. But he said, I don't really ever hear the devil mentioned. He said, I'm a little bit confused because growing up, I thought there was a good and a bad. And I still sense that the devil's like right here on my shoulder. But when I go into church, I don't ever hear him talked about. I don't ever hear sin talked about. That's a serious, significant issue. This was not a serious doctrinal issue like the deity of Christ, the reliability of Scripture, salvation by faith alone. That's not what this was. Secondly, it wasn't an obvious sinful um, uh, thing that was happening between Yodia and Syntyche. There wasn't some grievous sin that was taking place. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, if we look at Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 5, you know, there was immorality in the church, and when there was immorality in the church and it wasn't repented of, Paul said that they were actually to, uh, to, to put them out of the church, to remove that person from the church. He doesn't just tell them, hey, work it out, get along, find common ground. And then lastly, it's not just a personal issue between the two of them. You say, how do we know that? Well, uh, we know that because Paul writes the letter and he calls out these two women in the letter in front of the whole church. People knew that there was a problem with these two women and no doubt they had an opinion on who was right and who was wrong. In chapter 2, Paul reminds us of the humility of Christ which led to the cross and which led to his death and the payment for our sin debt. And chapter 3, he warns us about false teachers. And what's ironic in this particular text, that as we get here, you, you think, well, why would he even bother to address uh, this disagreement between two women? That just shouldn't be a big deal. But here's the thrust of what we want to talk about uh, this morning, that Paul recognized, and so should we, that often what appear to be petty little uh, disagreements uh, where broken friendships occur, uh, that can pose just as much danger as doctrine or as some other sin in the church. Why is that? Because disappointments or disagreements can cause us to stop focusing on and loving people as we're called to do. Because here's what happens. If you're here this morning and right now you know you have a strained relationship with somebody else that's here, somebody else that maybe is in the next service, somebody else that does life with us in the context of of the local church, if we're focused on that, then, then we don't have time to share Jesus with people who don't know him. We don't have time to take people who do know Jesus and help them to fall deeper in love to him. What happens is that the subjects begin to change. And rather than gospel influence in our community being the focus, uh, we start saying things like this. Have you heard this? Here's the latest update I had on this. Let me update this prayer request, this matter of prayer that we discussed in our group last week. Before too long, it's this is my opinion about this, and this is my perspective on that, and -and so-and-so has hurt their feelings, and and I heard that they were actually leaving the church. I found this to be true in my experience as a pastor and as a follower of Jesus, that most people don't leave churches and they don't break relationships with people because of serious doctrinal issues. Have you found that to be true? 
I mean, when's the last time that you heard somebody left our church or some other church that you've been a part of, and they stood up and said, the reason I'm leaving is because they have denied the infallibility of God's word. Doesn't happen very often. It does happen. Some of you have come from churches, I just mentioned one a few moments ago, where there's obvious doctrine that's not being taught. It does happen. But most often, we separate ourselves from people. We break relationship with people because we disagree over things that at the end of the day don't really matter. Anybody agree with me? John 17, Jesus prayed in his high priestly prayer. He prayed this amongst a lot of other things. He prayed that we would be one, that we would be unified, that we would get along together, that we would serve together, that we've had, we'd have great joy with one another. And yet, many churches have become just the opposite. We disagree about a lot of things. And if you've been part of a church for any length of time, you know there are a lot of things we can disagree on, right? There are a lot of things. I guarantee you there were some of you that were standing there just a few moments ago and you thought, when are they going to turn the sound down? It's too loud. I mean, I've sent emails. I tweeted Jerry. I told him, you know, I did all these things. I want the sound to come down. And there's somebody else going, why can't they crank it up? I mean, I went to Hope Community Church and they had it at 105 decibels and I loved it, man. The spirit was rocking me. I guarantee you that just took place. We're not going to ask for hands, but I guarantee you that just took place. There are people right now that you're sitting here and you're going, we're in chapter 4, we're almost out of Philippians. When are they going to end this series? I mean, I've been to churches where they could do Philippians in three weeks. It's taken Brian and Jerry, this is week 11, by the way, in the book of Philippians. When are they going to get on with something relevant? See, we disagree on a lot of different stuff. Maybe Yodia and Syntyche, I'm just guessing here, but maybe Yodia invited some friends out for lunch, let's just say. And Syntyche wasn't invited, and it hurt her feelings a lot. And so what she did is she went back home, and she, she wrote a blog post, right? And when she wrote the blog post, she never mentioned Yodia's name, never mentioned any of the other women, but it was just kind of inferred that I know that Yodia got together with all these other women in the church. They went over there, you know, they had a nice brunch together, and I wasn't invited. And then all of her friends who were on her blog, they follow her, right? They knew, even though Yodia's name wasn't mentioned, they went, yeah, I went to lunch. I know who she's talking about, right? And, and, and they, knew, they knew what it was all about, and that, that's where it all starts. It starts with things like that. It did in the days of the church of Philippi, and let's be honest, it does today. We don't know what the issue really was, but it's obvious from the fact that Paul addresses it in a letter to the whole church that most, if not all the people, knew the drama. They knew what was going on, but it was petty and it was silly, and they needed to get over it. And Paul said, I want you to... I want you to find common ground, and I want you to agree in the Lord. And so what I want to do in our remaining time together this morning is I want to give you just a very, very simple checklist on how you can resolve conflict. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to assume this morning that there are some of you that are sitting here right now, and um, not all of you, in fact, probably not the vast, I'm sure not the vast majority of you, but some of you, and you're kind of ticked off right now with somebody else that you do life with here at Northwest. Some of you right away went, yeah, it's actually you, and I got to listen to you talk. It could be, right? I mean, hey, at any given moment, 
I've been doing this uh, ministry thing for almost 30 years and about 10 uh, here at Northwest, so I've given plenty of you reason, I'm sure, to be upset with me. So I'm going to give you, I'll just put myself into the, I'm going to give you the right way to handle conflict. So if you see a long line up here this morning, you're going, wow, there really were a lot of people that were upset uh, with him. These are just a very, very simple checklist for you and uh, really especially for me. And I, and I mean that. I, I have, with a type A uh, personality and temperament that I have, I have the ability to be able to have conflict, but I will tell you this this morning, that at age 51, there are some things that I have learned over the years that when I do have conflict, here's the correct way to resolve that conflict. And I can't tell you that every time I follow this uh, prescription exactly like I'm going to preach it to you here uh, in just a moment, but if I did and when I do, it's awesome. It's great, all right? Let me give them to you just real quickly. Number one, if you need to resolve conflict with somebody, if you, need to, if you need to resolve a disagreement that you have with somebody, number one is check your attitude. Check your attitude. Before you go through the process of conflict resolution, it really might be good for you to ask two questions. Number one, should this even be a conflict? Right, have you ever thought about that? You ever been upset and ticked off at somebody? And then the more that you think about it, if you're sensitive to the Spirit of God and His work in your life, the Spirit kind of goes, get over it. That's not really an issue. They didn't really mean that. Yodia would have invited you. She thought you were out of town. That's why she didn't invite you. Get over it. This shouldn't be a conflict. This shouldn't be a disagreement. The first question should be, is this even a conflict? One pastor that I listened uh, to exposit this text, he gave three things, and, and I want to give them to you just real quickly. These are questions that you can ask underneath, determining should it be a conflict. Number one, is it a matter of eternal importance? Is it a matter of eternal importance? How many things at that point we would just go, I'm just going to get over it, because it is not a matter of eternal importance. Number two, is it a matter of biblical conviction? Some of us would do well to ask that question before we, get, before we judge other people, before we get offended that somebody did this or went there or was part of this. We should ask ourselves the question, is it a matter of biblical conviction? If not, you should let it go. Number three, is it a matter about which Christians must agree? Right? There are a lot of things that we have in the body of Christ and in a church where we can have room for disagreement. And so you have to check your attitude by, first of all, asking yourself the question, should this even be a conflict? And number two, am I the problem? Am I the problem? Do you know how many times uh, in my life I find myself in this particular place where I feel like I have conflict with this other person, and here's what they've done to me, right? Paul addressed this when he talked about humility. Let, others consider, let, let, let us consider others better than ourselves, right? When he talked about the humility of Christ in Philippians 2, that, that great kenosis passage where Christ empties himself of the use of his attributes, and he comes and he lives among us. He says, he says you ought to have that same attitude that you don't have rights, and so often when I ask myself the question, am I the problem, the Spirit of God answers back, sometimes softly, yes. Other times, duh, 
right? That's the kind of language that the Spirit of God uses in my life. Maybe he does in your life as well. Sometimes it's just as simple as we are the problem. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 5, Jesus is teaching and he says, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you will clearly be able to take the speck out of your brother's eye. In other words, what you see in them that you think is so bad and so evil and so wrong is not nearly as bad. It's a speck compared to the big honking log that's hanging out of your own eye. Am I the problem? You got to check your attitude first. And I believe that a lot of times for me, uh, number one, if I really evaluate those things, should this be a conflict and am I the problem, a lot of things go right off my radar screen, right? Because they're not really a problem after I've checked myself. Number two is have to have a face-to-face conversation. Matthew 18 gives us a wonderful blueprint for how to handle issues that we have with another person. And you know what's interesting, and, and I realize that it was written 2,000 years ago, but, but, but it mentions nothing about Facebook, right? It men- mentions nothing about just send them a text, right? You ever apologize via text? I do that with my wife sometimes. It works out really well. It's short conversations. I fill it with emojis, and it, it's just a wonderful thing, right? And she feels such deep emotion. Ah, it doesn't happen, Right? I mean, you can try to kind of bridge the gap, but when you get home, dude, you got to do some work, right? You got to get face to face. You got to face the music. You got to deal with what's going on. Matthew 18, 15 says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Or if you can't get to him face to face, you do it on Facebook, tweet it, Snapchat it, do whatever. No, it says you go and you tell him his fault between you and him. What's the next word? Anybody know? alone, right? So that means if I have a conflict with you, I don't go to him to get some advice on how I should handle my conflict with you. I just simply go to you. And most things can be resolved like that. Here's a couple practical suggestions. Number one, don't wait, do it now. I'm going to challenge you here in just a few moments that if you have a conflict with somebody that's even here this morning, that you would resolve that today, that you would commit yourself Uh, as uh, Ephesians says, that before the sun goes down today, that you would take care of that particular issue. You do it now. You don't wait. Jesus, again, speaking in the Sermon on the Mount, said in Matthew chapter 5, so if you're offering your gift at the altar and then remember that your brother has something against you, you leave your gift at the altar and you go and you make it right. We have lost that principle in our churches And we think it's okay uh, to just kind of, you know, at some point it'll just kind of resolve itself. Don't buy into the idea that time heals all wounds. Can I just tell you this morning, that's a lie. Time does not heal all wounds. What time does, if we let it go by for, for many of us, what time does is it makes those wounds go deeper and deeper and deeper. Time usually makes things worse, so do it now. Number two is to listen. If you're going to go to the person, you got to do it immediately, but you also have to listen. It's one of the most difficult things for me because God gave me a big mouth and he gave me the ability to be able to, um, somebody told me just a few weeks ago, I, I, my previous pastor at Colonial told me that if I hadn't gone into ministry, I should have been a prosecutor, that I would have been just excellent, right? He'd seen me in enough meetings, prosecute the case, right? 
So it's difficult for me as my mind's going 100 miles an hour. And I'm thinking, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. When are you done? Because I got, I got a rebuttal for that. Right? No, none of you have ever seen me like that, so that's new to you. But I'm just, just confessing that. But if you're going to go to somebody face-to-face, not only do you have to do it now, but you've got to listen to them. Do your best to understand their perspective. We taught our boys this verse growing up, and it has served them well and their father well as well. Proverbs 17.28 says this, Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. You can see me having that conversation with my high school sons as they were growing up, right? I would look at them and say, right now, you need to understand the truth of Proverbs 17. Even a fool is thought-wise if he keeps silent. If I were you, I would keep silent. Listen to people. And then lastly, just real quickly, is to find common ground. I've heard this phrase used so often, and you have too. You've probably used it. We'll just agree to disagree. You ever hear that? You probably said it this week, right? You had a disagreement with a coworker, maybe you had a disagreement with your husband or with your wife or with another friend, and you said, Well, I'll tell you what, we'll just agree to disagree. And you know what that means? We'll agree that I'm right. And we'll agree that you're wrong. And the other person is saying, No, we'll agree that I'm right and you're wrong. You haven't resolved anything. And my experience has been is that the relationship is never the same unless you do your very best to find common ground. Resolution of a disagreement is never easy. It's often uncomfortable. It most assuredly takes a lot of the time. But can I tell you that in my life, in my experience, it's always, always been worth it. Number three, take a friend. Sometimes we need a mediator, don't we? Sometimes we need a third person who can help us. And often we try to work things out, but sometimes it gets even worse. Look at verse three. Because here's what Paul tells Yodia and Syntyche in front of the whole church. He says, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with this guy named Clement. Shout out to Clement because he's got his name in the Bible. We don't even know who he is, by the way. He's never mentioned again. Scholars speculate. We don't know. But Clement, now that's where you want your name in the Bible, right? He has labored with me in the gospel side by side. And then here's the rest of the people at the church at Philippi and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. I'll see you in heaven someday. But back to you, Yodia and Syntyche. I ask you, true companion, help these women. Who's Paul referring to? That true companion scholars speculate about that. I believe there's a good possibility it was Epaphroditus. Remember, Epaphroditus is the one who brings the letter uh, from the church at Philippi to Paul. They come to check on him. He brings that care package to him. The Greek word that's translated, and this is a great thing for you, all right? If you want to impress your friends this week in a Bible study, this is the way to do it right here. Um, The word that's translated there in the ESV, true companion, suzugas. All right, say it with me. Suzugas. Suzugas, right? Suzugas. This means yoke fellow, and it's a person who pulls well in a harness that's built for two. Isn't that cool? A person who pulls well in a harness that's built for two. Um, the, The picture is one of two oxen pulling the same load. In other words, these are people, these suzugases, okay? This is a person, or these are people who are really good at working with other people and helping them through their issues. I think Paul here is referring to a particular person. 
I believe he's saying something like this. Hey, hey, Suzugas, you're really good at helping people. And I want to tell you, Yodia and Syntyche, they got an issue and you need to come alongside of them and you need to help them. I am so thankful that we have people at Northwest that serve in the role of Suzugas. I've been blessed by several of those people. Uh, over the course of certainly my ministry time at Northwest, but in my ministry in general as a pastor and just as a fellow follower of Jesus. In order for that suzugas to be helpful, we have to agree to listen to and submit to the counsel of that party, right? That's what happens in a baseball game, right? We all go into the baseball game and we say, that's the umpire. Now, this has kind of gotten all messed up in our culture, I get that, but he calls the balls, he calls the strikes, we agree to submit to, we agree to come under what that umpire says. And that's what you have to do. If you're going to have a suzugas in your life, then you have to agree to listen to that person, to come underneath their counsel. Some of us did this, by the way, with brothers and sisters growing up. We told just kind of part of the story to mom and dad. Do you remember that? Did you ever do that? It was kind of like the first one who got to mom and dad and they told their story. Then the other kid got in trouble. But if that kid would have been the first one to mom and dad, then the other one would have gotten in trouble because there's usually two sides to a story, right? Proverbs 18, 17 says, the one who states his case first seems right until the other one comes and examines him. My experience has been that if you refuse to allow another person to speak truth into your life, a neutral third party, then that probably means that you are guilty and you know it. So who do you ask to help you resolve a conflict that you have? I'd suggest that we use Galatians 6.1 as a guide. Paul says, brothers, if anyone is caught up in a transgression, you who are spiritual, so you want somebody that's spiritual, you want somebody that will do it in a spirit of gentleness, and you also want somebody who is humble because they need to keep watch out for themselves so that they don't enter into the same conflict that you're in. That might be an elder, it might be a deacon, it might be a life group leader, a trusted friend, someone that you and the other person trust and you have confidence in. Can I challenge you to find some people in your life who can serve as a suzugas? Here's the last thing. I'll land the plane stop. Last thing we need to do is get over it. Ultimately, whether the conflict is resolved to your satisfaction or not, you're going to have to make a decision. You'll need to decide to hold on to it, or as that great song says of just a few years ago, let it go. Want to sing it with me? I could, I could burst into song about right now. Like My singing voice is here for the morning right now. You've got to let it go. Forgiveness is this. We have said this over and over again here at Northwest, that forgiveness is this simple definition. Making a decision not to hold an offense against another person for the sake of Christ and moving on with my life for the glory of Jesus. That's what it means. I'm going to choose not to hold that offense against you, and I'm going to move on in my life for the glory of Jesus. That's what true forgiveness is. When you say, well, I'll forgive you, but I will never forget, you haven't forgiven Forgiveness says, I choose not to hold that offense against you, and I'm going to move on with my life for the glory of Jesus. What's the result of conflict that is, is resolved? It's joy. In fact, we get into the definition of joy now. Joy is the supernatural satisfaction in the person, purposes, and what was the other word? 
people of Jesus. When there is unity, I find this to be true, by the way, not just in our church, it's true in our families, it's true in our marriages, it's true on our church staff here at Northwest. When we have unity and when we agree on things, there's great joy, is there not? We enjoy one another and we enjoy what we're called to do and we enjoy doing life together. And Paul says then in verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. In fact, in case you didn't get that, he says, and again, I will say it, rejoice, be happy. And he says, let your reasonableness, translated in the ESV, or your gentle spirit, your graciousness be known to everyone. I'll just say this, when we do not or are not willing to work out conflict with other people, we demonstrate that we are unreasonable people. A person who's not willing to resolve conflict with a friend demonstrates with great clarity a lack of humility and a lack of understanding of the magnitude of the grace of God that was demonstrated to us at the cross. I want to close this morning by just asking you this question. Do you have any unresolved conflict? If Paul were writing a letter to the church in Cary, Northwest Cary specifically, at Panther Creek, what do you say? Hey, John and Dave, I implore you, I beg you, agree in the Lord, work out your stuff, and hey, Suzugas, Get over there and help them. Is that, would that be you this morning? If the answer is yes, what stops you from today at least beginning the process of reconciliation with that person this morning? Maybe you just need to let it go. Maybe that's your first step. You just need to check your own attitude and you go, it's my issue, it's my problem. I need to let it go, let it go. That's what I need to do. I just need to let it go. Maybe that's your step. Maybe number two you need to go to that person. You need to talk to them. Just you and them alone. You don't need to ask your life group to pray about it or your small group to pray about it or I got a prayer request. I'm going to get some advice from one of the pastors. Leave us out of it. You just need to go. Or maybe number two, number number three, you need to initiate with a suzugas. You need to say, hey, we haven't worked this out. but Man, I love this person. Maybe it's couples. We love this couple and we want to work through it because we don't want to wait for heaven to enjoy sweet koinonia, fellowship, partnership. And so we want to work it out. Every Sunday, uh, Jerry and I are up front and, you know, we do what we do, not just so you can evaluate the sermon based on a one to ten. Right? We don't, well, that's not why we do what we do. We do what we do because we love you and we want to see life change. That's what we want. That's what God wants. And so every Sunday morning, we're right up front. And I would love uh, this morning, uh, if this is applicable to your life, if you know you've got unresolved conflict in your home, in your workplace, certainly in this church, your neighborhood, that you'd come and let us begin to help you with that process of resolving conflict so that you can agree in the Lord and experience unbelievable joy that comes through unity. Let's pray. God, thanks for your word. Thanks for the truth of it. Now, may we take it and make application of it in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.